This episode is sponsored by Moody's. In a world where sustainability counts as much as financial performance, Moody's is pioneering positive change through good decision-making. Explore the comprehensive Moody's ESG solutions offering at moody's.com forward slash ESG. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, the SEC takes on ESG, how to engage employees on social issues, the quest for corporate reporting singularity, and who wants to be a climate tech billionaire? We're looking for unicorns this week on 350. It's March 19th, 2021. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, still wearing shamrocks, is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. Yes, I was looking for leprechauns this week, <laughs> not unicorns. <laughs> so what is St. Patrick's Day like in the Clancy household? Mm, it is obviously a holiday in in this combined household, um, but not a corned beef and cabbage kind of holiday, more of a thinking about Ireland and um, the immigration status of Ireland when it came over to the U.S. and what that means and just kind of reflecting on, honestly, on other cultures at the same time. Like, so we think about this, this, you know, oh, there's so many Irish people here in the United States. It, it's so important for us to remember, you know, where we came from and the sort of prejudice and the discrimination against the Irish people when we came over. So I always take a moment to reflect on on immigration. That's for me what what this day means for me. Obviously St. Patrick's Day is is really a religious holiday, but for for a US person, you know, an American Irish person, that's kind of how I I I mark it every year. Wow, well that's a far cry from green beer. <laughs> no, have you? My husband been has partaken Ireland, of you? the green beer, but yeah, he he used to believe it. Actually, he should have a breakfast every year and then go into New York City and, and go to the parade. I've actually marched in the parade several times, um, um, just in my past, and and have appreciated that. But I'm not. Um, I, I like I said, I I always think about the people and the culture and and how do we remember how to treat everyone with kindness. So. Yeah, that's kind of how I think about it. <laughs> so wow, well, I'm, uh, that's lovely, and I'm <laughs> so glad I asked. So thank you for that. Uh, what, what's what's been up for you this week? Did you recognize St. Patrick's Day? <laughs> um, no, not really. <laughs> um, you know, other than working for a company called Green Biz, mm. but no, it's it's it's. Uh, I don't have any Irish ancestry and. Um, I got nothing. <laughs> so let's move on and get into the weekend review. Let's start the week with the United States Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, as we know it. 
Wow, what a difference a few months makes. What a difference an administration makes. Uh, this week, Alison Heron Lee, the acting chair of the SEC, while we're awaiting the fate of President Biden's nominee, Gary Gensler, to be confirmed as the chair. Alison Heron Lee uh, gave a presentation. Actually, I think I saw her give a, a, more than one that I watched. And it's called a climate for change, meeting investor demand for climate and, and ESG information at the SEC. All right, that's a long and winding uh, title. But the, the point is that she laid out what the commission is, is doing already and thinking about as it looks at the environmental, social and governance information and metrics of, of buy in companies for investors, and that, of course, includes uh, individual investors like you and me. Um, and just uh, amazing. I mean, just a couple quotes. Uh, so we we reprinted, uh, adapted her presentation, excerpted it. Uh, it's still pretty long. It was, I think, 6,000 words, and we cut it down to a couple of thousand, uh, 34 footnotes. Um, and you could, we link certainly to the full transcript. But it was pretty amazing. She said, you know, human capital, human rights, climate change. These issues are fundamental to our markets and investors want to and can help drive sustainable solutions on these issues. I mean, wow. So she's talking, first of all, acknowledging the, the relationship between human capital, human rights, climate change to uh, markets and investors. Uh, and she's acknowledging that that companies, you know, can and investors uh, want to and can drive these solutions. So that that's just a remarkable statement, and it goes on and on from there. And yeah, if you haven't been tracking the uh, the past month or so, um, the SEC announced the formation of its first ever climate and ESG task force within the Division of Enforcement working to detect climate and ESG-related misconduct, greenwashing, as others call it, and uh, a, a new a number of other uh, initiatives, uh, many of which are laid out in, in this excerpt that we ran, uh, where the agency is just leaning in to climate and ESG, understanding that this is a risk factor for companies and therefore investors. Yeah, I... I have to I just want to point out and I and I this is one of the things that I really appreciated about her is that she was appointed by President Trump. Um and so this thinking is is ingrained in this in the current commission at least so there has been progress made so like we're not going to be coming from a place of nowhere right even though we were worried about some things that they were considering um I like I, I like that she's doesn't necessarily rep represent a far left point of view, you know what I'm saying? So I, you know, that that gives it for me um, the credibility factor, uh, kind of the bipartisan factor. Let's just put it that way. Let's let's think of it that way. One of the things that in her remarks that I found particularly interesting was the the uh, the comments she made around having uh, wanting to be wanting more disclosure about political spending. Right. So the, the SEC can't finalize a rule in this area right now, but the political spending disclosures and how they are linked to ESG issues. And I think that's particularly fascinating right now as we're seeing, uh, you know, there's lots of examples of companies that have made social statements 
um, about something and then their political spending, the lobbying that, that, you know, where they're putting their money behind policies or who they're paying for lobbying, or uh, in some cases, um, industry associations is diametrically opposed to those statements. So that for me was like, ooh, you know, like that's going to ensure that there's at least a disclosure of that and, and questions that can be asked in, in more more specifically about that. So I found that to be particularly interesting, aside from what you've also mentioned. Yeah, no, I agree. And it it's not just uh, climate change or even environmental mm-hmm. issues. She's talking about uh, racial justice, workforce exactly. diversity, board diversity, um, and yes, political spending. Uh, she she said was is is key to any discussion of sustainability. I mean, right. let me just repeat that: political spending disclosure is key to any discussion of sustainability. That's a quote mm-hmm. from Miss Lee, and that's just. I mean, I have to say, I'm, I'm blown away uh, that <laughs> an agency can make such a, a turnabout in such a short period mm-hmm. of time. But, you know, mm-hmm. we said this four years ago and we're saying it now. Elections have consequences. Mm-hmm. They do. One other thing I would watch um, for the audience out there is is the uh, willingness to work with other other commissions outside the United States. Because as we know, there are other, other jurisdictions that are driving disclosure frameworks and potential standards. And I think um, it's, it's important for there to be, I don't know if the word is, co- I don't know if coordination is a proper word, but at least um, frameworks that align with each other. So, yeah. 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 A lot and, of great things. <laughs> and lots more to come. Um, we have a conversation coming up later in this episode with Janine Guillot, who is the CEO of SASB, the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board. Uh, about uh, another acronym, IFRS, uh, <laughs> International Financial Reporting yeah. um, Standards Organization, that's trying to find some singularity among all the reporting standards and frameworks out there. Uh, there was a development uh, just last week about that, and she and I talked about that. And of course, we're going to be hip deep in all of this at, at our GreenFin 21 Summit coming up in Woo! less than four weeks. Oh my, oh my God, goodness. I have to say that I'm really <laughs> more excited than ever about that based on, uh, on on who's speaking and who's coming. And, you know, just it, it, all I have to tell you, the Vatican is in the house or will be, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I uh, and that, that. that in and of itself is an interesting story that we'll get to in some future episode of why the Vatican is leaning into um, ESG and actually way beyond ESG is really thinking about rethinking capitalism. I mean, talk about breathtaking. Uh, and, you know, the Vatican has more land and more money than, well, God, I guess, as this expression <laughs> goes. And and so it's, it's, it's extremely impactful when they start paying attention to all of this. Mm-hmm. What else do you want to talk about, Joel? Oh, uh, batteries. Oh, okay. Uh, Katie Fehrenbacher, our senior writer and analyst for transportation this week, uh, devoted her Transport Weekly uh, newsletter to the uh, called Car Companies Are Now Battery Companies. And it's hinged on a, a, another interesting and I think amazing announcement that happened earlier this month uh, from Volkswagen. Uh, they, they had a power day deep dive, as she called it, into Volkswagen's global plans for battery chemistry development and manufacturing. 
I think it's important to note that uh, that Volkswagen has uh, made some huge commitments around uh, electric vehicles and the transition it's making. Um, but key to that, obviously, is batteries, as it is for every uh, automotive company, uh, both uh, the incumbents and the and the startups. Is how do we get the price and performance? down to uh, the, pr the price down and the performance up in terms of how much you can charge and how far you can go without running out of juice. And, um, you know, Tesla obviously paved the way for this, but uh, Volkswagen, which obviously has is coming back from its own reputational deficit, um, but, uh, you know, as, as often happens in this, uh, when you come out of something like this, as we've seen many, many companies from Nike and sweatshops to, uh, just uh, you know, Walmart and a bunch of others, all of a sudden start to be uh, taking a leadership position. And Volkswagen certainly seems to be doing that. So you know, the search for battery chemistry and battery performance is so key, not just to electric vehicles, but to energy storage that allows solar and wind to be available 24-7. Uh, this is really fundamental to so many things that need to happen in our uh, emerging clean economy. So I, I love that she is uh, <laughs> geeking out on this as she does. <laughs> a battery and, uh, nerd. A battery yeah. nerd. Can you use nerd and geek in the same sentence? I, I, okay. we, we just did. So there you go. Uh, what did you take away from this, Heather? So yeah, m most of what you just said. But I think for me, one of the major factors is uh, you didn't mention the manufacturing capabilities that these the automakers are really bringing. So so Tesla right when they they started out they were they were doing it soup to nuts essentially and that's um that was a, a tough thing to do as a startup but they did they prevailed of course I think I forget if they're number 1 as far as market cap right now but I mean they're certainly number 1 as far as automakers. But when um, you say soup to nuts you're talking about the battery manufacturing the whole the vehicle. batteries yeah right um so I think one of the things that's really interesting to me is that, um, you know, if you think about the complex and very massive um, investments that the automakers have made in manufacturing capabilities and um, where they are, right? So are they in the United States or they're, you know, for, let's just take, let's just go to the U.S. ones for a moment. Um, for me, one of the most interesting things about this move is that they could create a whole new manufacturing wave and, and uh, opportunity in the United States, especially for electric vehicles, right? Um, we've, we've heard it, we've seen it a little bit with the buses, uh, companies coming to the United States from the UK, from China, manufacturing electric buses. Um, or homegrown and, companies like Proterra. Or even homegrown, yes, exactly. Um, but for me, um, there's two things that make this really interesting. One is that, because it could be a, a whole new wave of jobs, it, it very associated with with a clean economy investment. And also because they have the money, right? So they have a it's a very capital intensive business to be manufacturing these things. And so they might be able to get up and running more quickly than than Tesla did. They've got the money, they've got the the pockets. Um, and they can kind of ride on, if you will, the ride on that to get this up and running. So and, and at the beginning, many of these companies were not wanting to get into the battery part, but I think they've all realized that this is like the, <laughs> the, the essentially the, you know, the, the gem and the heart of what needs to happen is they have to have the battery right. And, and they, 
and and maybe in in order to do that, they're going to have more control over the manufacturing. So, yeah, for that was that was I think one of the big things I was taking out of this. It's very cool. I I think it's um it's a wonderful turning point because General Motors, of course, was talking about this earlier this year as well. Um, so lots to watch. And with that, I'm going to go to the final piece of the week, which is your. Who wants to be a climate tech billionaire piece? <laughs> soon, <laughs> Joel, coming which, soon to a cable channel near you. Coming soon. <laughs> so this this essay was inspired by another essay um, by longtime friend of Greenbiz, Tim O'Reilly. So he's he's a a long time he's a legend in the tech industry for for calling many of the sort of um, important trends of, I hate to say when, because I was around, <laughs> but it was not, it was not during this century of a web 2.0, you know, well, actually maybe at the beginning part of the century, web 2.0, if you will. Um, he's, he's really credited with, with helping us understand the open source movement where, you know, people are giving up their software code in order for there to be better code written on top of it. And the maker movement, the sort of do it yourself, create your own, uh, thing based on printing potentially parts for it or, or you know, just DIY tech movement. So Tim O'Reilly wrote a, um, an essay, I guess it was for Wired, uh, called Climate Change Will Reshape Silicon Valley as We Know It. And for me, the big takeaway was like that, you know, obviously Silicon Valley made its its money on on sort of very consumer focused and like how big can this business be and what can we do? You know, like things that frankly, in my mind, didn't have a lot, you know, not necessarily a lot of, um, social value, <laughs> shall we say it wasn't, it was just, wasn't the first, it wasn't the first, um, thing that these people were thinking about. Uh, they were thinking about how can I make a lot of money? Um, and the sort of thesis that, that he's talking about is here, like, we have this great opportunity, and I've been writing about climate tech, so that's why I was excited to see your essay. Um, but, like, the, the whole movement of who can participate, and, and we have such an opportunity to go for something way bigger and way more important for the Earth that, that could lift up way more people. And P.S., it isn't necessarily going to happen in San Jose or Palo Alto or, you know, sorry, Joel, but Oakland. Um, that there's there's so much opportunity outside of that of that nexus of of uh, tech innovation that we've seen for so long. So it was an exciting piece, and I was really excited to to, to that you wrote about it. And, and I would love to know a little bit sort of about what inspired your uh, your thesis. Yeah, well, hopefully a little of it will happen in Oakland. But the, your point is correct. That I mean, Tim, as you said, has has really been ahead of movements. He's seen uh, things coming. He looks around corners and and has a pretty good track record of, of calling it uh, gov government or gov 2.0 is that of the new way of public accessible government and on and on, as you said, maker movement and such. And so when he looks at climate change, I mean, that's noteworthy, much as we just talked about the SEC t talking about climate change, something it hadn't really done before. Um, and he, you know, he calls climate change the defining crisis of our time that's going to lead to a new era of innovation and business creation. Um, and he said, as our efforts to address it, uh, as it becomes more imminent, our efforts to address it will become the epicenter of the next entrepreneurial revolution, followed by this statement. With the innovation that's needed to transform entire businesses and economies to net zero emissions, 
There will be more billionaires created over the next two decades than during the internet boom. I mean, that's pretty, <laughs> pretty amazing statement. More billionaires created in climate tech uh, between now and uh, 2040, according to his calculation, than during the internet boom. That's a lot. And when you're considering from where we're starting from there, as I said, there are currently precious few clean tech billionaires not named Elon. Uh, and so we've got a long way to go, but I think this is really remarkable. It certainly animates what we've been, we've been doing at GreenBiz because this is, you know, heart and soul, uh, what we're about in terms of the opportunities that exist. Uh, although I added a dimension to it that he didn't talk about. And to his credit, he jumped on Twitter and and said some nice things about the addition that I brought to the table that, you know, we need to bring in the social piece of this. This cannot be a small group of of mostly white men and a few epicenters around the world, including, as you said, down here in Silicon Valley, you know, it, that we need to uh, make these technologies, not just the technologies accessible and affordable, but the uh, opportunities not just to create jobs, not just to create businesses, but to create wealth uh, widely uh, around communities and individuals and families around the world, uh, particularly in uh, developing economies. So I thought, you know, this really spoke to me because this is what you know, our company has been about, Heather, you know, this is what we are excited about. This is what we've tried to uh, center our events and editorial coverage uh, around uh, sustainable energy, mobility, infrastructure, food production, and everything else, the circular economy, and not just the potential for the one and only planet we, we know and love, but but also for humanity. What's the the potential to you know, create the next generation of, of, of jobs and businesses and wealth. So uh, this, and you know, and we're, we're, this isn't some pipe dream. We're already started down that path. Uh, there's there's uh, so many companies, uh, not yet billion dollar companies, uh, although some of them are, uh, and not yet billionaire entrepreneurs, although that's coming. Um, so I'm just, I couldn't have been more excited. I, I, I you yeah. know, I don't remember the last time I wrote an essay about an essay, uh, but this one particularly stopped me cold and, and I just really wanted to share it and sort of help explain what yeah. the significance of this is. Yeah, and I'm, I, and that was the, the, the angle you were just talking about is the one that has me really excited. I, I really, um, there's some really amazing entrepreneurs of color coming up in my in my radar and I'm I would love to tell the story of one of them having a billion dollar IPO. I just it would be and I'm looking forward to that day because I think that day is coming and I I love Silicon Valley. But um I love the idea that there's so much opportunity outside and that that the way we're thinking about climate tech with the local focus with the focus on communities and, and thinking from inside those communities. Those are the people that are going to make the difference and they should benefit from it.
Last week, the IFRS Foundation, which among other things publishes the International Financial Reporting Standards, took another step toward the goal of developing a set of sustainability reporting standards that can be applied globally to meet the needs of capital markets and others. What does it all mean? Joining me now is Janine Gulliat, CEO of SASB, the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board. Hi, Janine. Hi, Joel. How are you? Doing great. So all those acronyms and aspirations aside, this seems to be a pretty significant development. Can you break it down for us? Sure. It is a it is a very significant development. And I say it's a big the biggest development in the field of accounting standards in decades, um, which and, and I think this is a sign that um, the field of sustainability disclosure has really matured because sustainability disclosure now has the attention of what I would call, you know, market infrastructure institutions. That's the accounting standard setters, the IFRS being one, or the IASB being one of the most significant globally, and very importantly, the securities regulators, the IOSCO, which is the International Organization of Securities Regulators, is also very engaged in these conversations and also has issued some statements that they are supportive of the IFRS Foundation's efforts. So I think of this as um, this is the year that sustainability disclosure is now on the radar of you know mainstream market infrastructure players. And that is a very significant development. So what happens to all the other existing frameworks, such as uh, TCFD and, and, and the many others? As you know, there are quite a lot. Yeah. So I think some of you who are listening have probably are aware of the documents we published last year with what we our fellow frameworks and standard setters, what we call the group of five. Um, and those documents, we laid out this idea that there are three, that's nested materiality. There's um, the information that's currently in the financial statements uh, that's currently governed by the financial accounting standard setters, IASB and FASB. There is a broader set of information that is relevant to the creation of enterprise value. So that's information that uh, provides insight into how companies create value. And then there is a broader, the broadest set of information is about a company's societal impacts. So we laid out that idea of nested materiality, and then we mapped the existing frameworks and standard setters into that concept. And we think there's definitely room to consolidate the field along those lines. And so we think there's a group of um, organizations that are focused on the link between sustainability and enterprise value. That's broadly SASB, TCFD, um, integrated reporting, um, CDSB. Um, we think ultimately there's room for all of those organizations to come together in some way and form a comprehensive um, set of guidance. And we think that could be leveraged by uh, the IFRS Foundation as it moves forward. So we see a simpler field going forward. And definitely um, a lot of the concepts we laid out in our work with our fellow standard setters last year were oriented towards laying groundwork for that simpler field. 
it feels in some ways like we've seen this movie before. I've been talking for a long time about harmonizing, consolidating, uh, you know, globalizing this, the this sort of cacophony of standards that have been out there. How is this different? Well, I think the big difference is you're now seeing actual organizational mergers. So it's uh, it's much harder to harmonize um, and align when you actually have a lot of different organizations. But this is one of the major things that drove uh, SASB's an announcement last fall that we intended to merge with the IIRC. Um, and we're now actively planning that merger. And uh, I can't say enough good things about both the IIRC team and the SASB team um, as they work on that merger. But we hope to uh, complete the merger of SASB and IIRC by the end of May. And so, you know, I do think that part of what does have to happen in this space is organizational consolidation. And IRC is the, uh, if I get this right, the Internationally Integrated Reporting Council? Yes, yes. Thanks for clarifying uh, the acronyms. But yes, the International Integrated Reporting Council. And the reason that SASB and IIRC fit together so nicely is IIRC has a framework that, that provides guidance for how companies can talk about how they create value over the long term. Um, they do that. That framework talks about six forms of capital and how companies use different forms of capital to create value over the long term. And then the SASB standards fit very neatly underneath that high-level IR framework. And the SASB standards have um, detailed metrics that can be used in an integrated report. Um, and we did just just um, this week actually publish a blog on how SASB and IR fit together that um, some of your listeners might be interested in. I've been seeing uh, more and more references to greenwashing, not the usual uh, misleading marketing claims for consumers, but including from the likes of the European Union, referring to asset managers who are repping their funds as, as sustainable, but maybe not have, have not done it in the best way possible. Would something like this fix that? Well, part of that issue is an issue of lack of commonly understood terminology. And I can't emphasize enough how important it is that we coalesce around really some common, what I call an architecture, which is common terminology uh, to describe the field and activities within the field. And, you know, a perfect example of this will be a sustainable fund. What's a sustainable mutual fund? And in some people's mind, uh, a sustainable mutual fund, by definition, can't hold certain things, can't hold fossil fuels, for instance. Other people will have a different view, which is you can have a sustainable fund that overweights or holds oversized positions on oil companies that the asset manager thinks have, have demonstrated a credible transition plan, right? So part of this is terminology and we have to we have to come to some common understanding of these concepts um, in order to even be able to make even to talk about well is there a problem or not 
Um, having said that, I mean, we think the, the end solution for all greenwashing claims is around metrics. And this is why we're so focused at SASB on metrics and comparable metrics, because if you get comparable metrics out into the public domain, then um, ev- then users have the ability to compare those metrics and they can reach their own conclusions. So that's our aim. So finally, uh, what happens next if I'm a corporate sustainability executive responsible for quarterbacking my company's sustainability reporting? How should I be thinking about this? Yeah. So I always say communication strategy, strategy, strategy. I think I think what has happened with sustainability reporting through the years is um, it evolved to meet the needs of multiple stakeholders. And I think those stakeholder needs and particularly the arrival of the the, um, big investors to this conversation, we're now at a point where different users of sustainability information have different information needs. They consume information in different ways. They use information in different ways. And so I think the days of producing a sustainability report that can meet the needs of this incredibly wide range of users from customers to employees, to uh, NGOs, to a financial analyst at a big active asset manager. I think that to think that one report is going to meet all of those needs are extremely challenging. So I think the way the future is thinking about very targeted delivery of information that's relevant to the specific user and their use case, but supported by common, wherever possible, metrics and information so that what um, companies can do is capture information once and then reuse it for multiple purposes and serve it up in the way that users consume information. Well, uh, watch this space. Janine Gilad is the CEO of SASB, the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board. Uh, thanks so much, Janine. Thank you. It's hard to believe that just one year ago, many of us were preparing to leave our places of work for maybe two or three weeks. The relationship between companies and their employees has changed drastically over those 12 months, and business leaders are more aware than ever about issues such as employee well-being and systemic workplace biases that have held back progress for women and people of color. Against that backdrop, employee engagement advisory firm WeSpire recently released its 10th annual survey on employee engagement, which canvassed 1,850 U.S. adults. Joining GreenBiz350 to talk about the findings is WeSpire CEO, Susan Hunt-Stevens. Hi, Susan. Hi, Heather. Great to be here. It is so great to see you and wonderful to chat. So I want to start with the themes that have held true over the past decade of this survey. What, What remains the same? It's hard to believe we've been doing this survey for 10 years. And I have to say this year was probably the one I anticipated the most because it was the first after COVID to really get a read on what had changed. And so I was really looking forward to seeing uh, that data. 
But let's talk about the themes that haven't changed first. Uh, And that is that employee engagement in purpose and impact related programs, sustainability, CSR, well-being, DNI just continues to grow dramatically. When we did the first survey in 2009, only 14% of employees said their companies had official programs in these areas. It peaked in 2019 at 42% and dropped slightly this year to 39%. So uh, not a majority yet, but many, many companies now have these programs. The second thing that hasn't changed, which is a little bit disappointing, is there's still not clear ownership for employee engagement in these programs. Now, HR has grown in importance. Only 3% of employees said HR had anything to do with these programs when we first surveyed. That number is now 23%, but still the vast majority of programs don't think that HR has anything to do with these purpose and impact initiatives. And who they look at, but not with a pretty much majority, is the management team, their team leader. But interestingly enough, they say employees are still as much of a contributor to leadership in these areas. Now, think about this. If I were an employee answering a survey and it says, who owns our manufacturing strategy? Who owns our product development strategy? Who owns our sales strategy? I'd be able to name that. The fact employees don't know who owns something is important to this. I think is a big wake-up call for companies to really make it clear where the owner for this sits. Great. Okay. Thanks for that perspective. Uh, one of the things that it did show as well was the, the growing interest in pro-social and purpose-based initiatives. So can you give us some examples of what that means? So first of all, it was interesting because it's not only the programs themselves. And so there's a growing interest in well-being programs. There's a growing interest in DNI programs. There's a growing interest in sustainability programs, volunteering, charitable giving, anything where it is not only good for the business that you participate in these programs and the employee, but somehow good for society and the environment. And so, and there's a big gap between employees who want these programs and employees who have these programs. And interestingly enough for the green biz audience, the biggest gap is in sustainability. Many fewer employees have access to sustainability programs relative to those who want them. And so, and that has been consistent, that gap, and it just keeps growing. So companies aren't keeping up on that front. But the other thing we look at is pro-social incentives, um, which is the the thing companies do to get employees to do things. And um, and under normal circumstances, that would fall under bonuses and rewards would be the words that you think about. What's been interesting is we've been surveying for years um, what incentives people are most interested in. And for the first time, cash-based incentives in the form of gift cards or small bonuses or things like that has fallen below 50%. And what's now rising in importance are uh, donations to not-for-profits, sustainability upgrades, everything from credits for electric vehicle purchases to carbon offsets and health and well-being related uh, uh, funding. So things that you could use for exercise classes or a therapist or a nutritionist or things like that. So a real shift. And this actually mirrors some data that came out several years ago from the Harvard Business Review that was showing that pro-social incentives are actually more effective as a form of incentive than cash-based incentives, even for sales teams, which was shocking, at least in my mind, to do this. So they work better 
and employees increasingly want them. The challenge is that's not what most employees have access to. And so I think there's going to be a big shift over the next 10 years in that area. Yeah. I want to go back to something you mentioned just a moment ago, which is that employees want more access to sustainability programs. Do you, are you talking about things that they can do personally? Or are you talking about the corporate program? Both. Uh, so what employees want to be able to do is participate in the company's sustainability strategy. Mm. So if the company has set a net zero goal or a, a zero waste goal or an end plastic waste goal, or, you know, they want to know what should I be doing at work to help achieve that goal? And most don't have any idea and they want to be told. Um, and, and so what can I be doing in my role? What can I be doing on the side? How can I get involved in these programs? But we also know that employees really want support for home. 89% say they want advice for how to be more sustainable at home from their employer. Just fascinating data. So I want to jump to what I found to be one of the most surprising findings which is that the surveyed employees reported a decrease in diversity, equity, and inclusion programs over the past year. What do you make of that? Heather, this was the one that just shocked me when I saw the data. In fact, I thought it was wrong. I was like, all right, team, go back. We must have, you know, did different sized companies answer the survey? Was there a shift in age? Was there a shift in location? No. Data was accurate. And what was fascinating is in 2019, there'd been a big jump in programs. So we saw a big leap from 2018 to 2019, and then it fell back to below where it was in 2018 slightly. I don't know exactly what happened, but we have two hypotheses. The first is that because these are relatively newer programs, many of them, and we observe this in the work we do, uh, relied on employee volunteer leaders in charge of affinity groups, employee mm -hmm. resource groups, and things like that, who, whose programs were generally being delivered in mm -hmm. person through meetings and events. And that these programs did not make the leap to a remote environment nearly as well as more established programs like charitable giving and health and well-being and, and something that's really different is that charity, uh, charitable giving and health and well-being have a history of having technology platforms to support these programs. DNI, there's just starting to be technology to support DNI initiatives. We Spire has them, other companies do too, but it's just not as pervasive and as widespread. And so that is one theory. The other theory that we have is that the events in May surrounding George Floyd and the awareness of just how deep and pervasive systemic racism is in business is causing a lot of DNI and executive team leaders to step back and reevaluate whether or not the programs they are offering are really addressing the problems at hand. And that many companies are in a deep rethink mode about these programs. And what we're going to see is a, a relaunch in many ways over the coming months of better programs that really tackle the issues of systemic racism, um, anti-racism, things like that. We don't know that for sure, but that would be another hypothesis that it, it was just a pullback this year and then we'll see a reemergence. Um, we obviously are hopeful that that is, is gonna happen, but certainly this data was something that I think companies need to be really careful about because we are making a lot of statements and a lot of commitments around racial equity and justice. But if we don't begin to put actions and programs and initiatives behind those statements, 
it's going to seem very inauthentic and and very disappointing to our workforce. Right. And so that follow-up note to self <laughs> to ask about that next year, uh, but also a lot between that, in between this time and then. Uh, so for many companies, the last year has been a real test of workforce resilience. Where does the rising ESG movement fit in with that? This last year has been a test of so many things, whether <laughs> personal resilience, workforce <laughs> resilience, business resilience, oh yeah. my goodness, your resilience, right? Uh, so, you know, so one view is that this past year was just an acceleration of the rise of ESG and the connection between ESG and resilience that was already, you know, underway. And it was an accelerant, but that whether it was the wildfires or the droughts or the supply chain disruptions due to hurricanes or, you know, climate change that, that ESG was coming about and becoming more important because these things were issues prior to the pandemic. But what I think the pandemic did is just put an absolute microscope over all of the um, what was underlying a lot of the social, environmental, and governance issues uh, in in business globally. And it was the most extreme circumstance that in many of us could imagine. But this intersectionality between health and safety, mental health and well-being, racial justice, gender inequity exacerbated by the complete meltdown in our care systems. And of course, you know, with the backdrop of this just shrinking timeline to create major, major impact on, on, on carbon, um, I think just made it so everyone was starting to sit up and listen to ESG and realize how important it was. And the estimate I've heard is that accelerated the ESG movement by three to five years. One final question for you. You mentioned authenticity earlier. So what are the most authentic steps that business leaders, particularly those in sustainability strategy, can take to improve workforce resilience? So like to go back to that resilience theme. What can they do? Yeah, so first and foremost, every leader, whether they're a sustainability leader or a CEO, needs to be human and to work to be a better human, uh, to be a great leader. There is so much research showing how critical it is to just make sure people know you care about them personally, to be honest and open with what you are struggling with, what the business is struggling with, and to admit that some days you don't have all the answers and are looking to the team um, to help solve these problems. At the same time, you do have to remember as a leader that providing clarity and vision for a hopeful future is really important. Um, don't tell people that things are fine when they're not, but tell them how they could be fine and how, how you could help. And I think, you know, I know you've gone through that this year. I know I went through that this year of just as leaders, we had to say, this is really tough right now, but if we do X, Y, and Z, you know, we will prevail. And this is how you can help. Because I think when people feel like they're part of the solution, um, that, that gives them a sense of resilience and a, and a sense of, of connection um, and hopefulness. The second thing I would just really emphasize is that leaders understand the importance of psychological safety. You know, this is this idea, there's seven questions um, you can score. It's an open source um, set of questions and you can score psychological safety in your workforce. And it's the ability to bring your whole self to work, take risks, not fear mistakes. And psychological safety is not only key to high performing teams, it turns out it's really key to inclusivity. 
as well. And when you are uh, creating a, a high level of psychological safety, you're performing better, your people are more resilient, and your people feel more included and that they can really contribute each day. So emphasizing psychological safety is my second recommendation. And then finally, I think embedding social purpose into every employee's work week in some way, shape or form, we know that makes them healthier, We mo uh, both physically and mentally. And we also know that makes them more productive and we know that's better for business. And so embedding social purpose into people's work days is not just the right thing to do, but it's really the smart thing to do to drive improved workforce resilience and better business outcomes. Susan is so wonderful to catch up. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It was so great to be here, Heather. Thanks so much for having me. You just heard from Susan Hunt Stevens, the CEO of WeSpire. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to learn more about the organizations, stories, and events we mentioned. While you're there, check out our free e-newsletters. We publish seven of them now. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to learn more about them. We'd love to hear from you, your questions, your comments, your tips, rants, whatever you got. Email us at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. This episode is sponsored by Moody's. In a world where sustainability counts as much as financial performance, Moody's is pioneering positive change through good decision-making. Explore the comprehensive Moody's ESG solutions offering at moody's.com forward slash ESG.